Travels with George Bezos. How the law threw up some bumpy roads. On October 1, 2012, the scene was set for the Judicial Commission of Inquiry to commence its hearings into the Maracana massacre. 44 people were killed, 34 of them by police, in August of that year. The night before I had been with George Bezos, Jason Brickhill, Miriam Wielden, Bonuiza Sabia, Avani Singh, Michael Power, all lawyers at the Legal Resources Center, LRC. George Edison and were the counsel team, while Miriam and Bonamusa were the attorney team. George had asked for a lift from Johannesburg to Rustenburg where the hearings would be held. I volunteered. In that three-hour drive he would regale me with stories about past inquiries flowing from the harrowing brutality of the apartheid police, Sharpeville, Sowet, the Harms Commission, the Goldstone Commission, the Boybatong Massacre. He talked about inquests into murders of activists in police custody. Lux Martin Bill, Steve Biko, Ahmed Timmel, the Craddock Four. George had lived through all of these, from 1960 to 1993. He thought he would never witness them again. Yet he was wrong. And disappointed. He would recall the familiar excuse of the police. They were under attack, they acted in self-defense, a prisoner jumped out of the window of a 20-story building, the protesters were a dangerous unarmed mob, and so on. Judges of the past inquiries had excused the conduct of the police. And so too did the magistrates. Faced with incontrovertible evidence of torture, as in the case of Nuthal, the first political activist to die in police detention under apartheid, the magistrate would exculpate the police. They did the same at the Biko inquest, despite the medical evidence pointing to gruesome assault before his murder. The laughable excuse for the murder of Timmel, that he committed suicide by jumping off a building, found favor with the magistrate. At Sharpeville, the evidence was that most of those killed by the police had been shot from the back. But the official police line was that they had been killed in a confrontation with the police. The probabilities were that they had been shot while trying to run away from the police. George recalled that the apartheid police were also notorious for planting weapons at the scene of the crime. They had done so in Sharpeville and in many other incidents that followed it. These barbarous acts, he hoped, had been a thing of the past. Acts of police aside, George would say the familiar judicial rulings in the inquests of the apartheid state were not that the police were innocent. Nor did they rule that those killed by the police were responsible for their own deaths. Instead, they tended to accept the versions of a scuffle with the police, a struggle ensued, a confrontation occurred. In these seemingly neutral terms, the apartheid judges and magistrates could introduce judicial palatability to the murderous conduct of the police. The refrain was there was no one to blame. Nonsicolello Biko, upon hearing of the verdict of the magistrate in the Biko inquest, exclaimed, What? No one to blame. If anything, the apartheid judicial frame left George skeptical of power, judicial power included. Power, in its tendency to corrupt, is to be distrusted, was his belief. At the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, TRC, in which George would oppose insincere applications for amnesty by the police, some truth was revealed. But mostly no truth was told. The lies of the past were repeated and often amplified. For the most part, however, there was dead silence. No one came forward at all. Those who came forward blamed their superiors, particularly if they had since died. My superiors told me to do it, Mr. Bezos. You know Mr. Bezos, there was a war. No, Mr. Bezos, I cannot recall. These were the standard police responses at the TRC. The TRC, depended much on the cooperation of the apartheid killers. While it was shunned by many, 
some evidence had been uncovered that tended to expose the systematic nature of apartheid killings. The death squads, the torture camps, the falsehoods in an effort to defeat the ends of justice. Yet, some judges and magistrates exonerated them. The judiciary in this sense was not made up of some hostile beings, but constituted a part of a hostile establishment, as Sidney Kentridge would later recall. This was part of the disappointment with the killings by the police at Maracana. At the time, it appeared that most had been shot from the back while fleeing from the police. Official accounts of the police version, even at that stage, were that they acted in self-defense, a stance eerily familiar to George. Foot Soldiers A feature of the TRC, was its focus on the foot soldiers. Craig Williamson appeared. He blamed the dead men of apartheid. Eugene de Kock did not appear, but he was arrested for his role in the murders at Flockpools. He would be sentenced to a staggering 200 years in prison. It seemed that all the sins of apartheid would be washed away by his incarceration. Yet the masterminds, the thinkers of the system, did not appear. They did not account. Those who kept the tanks of the military trucks fueled, the big oil companies, Mobile, Shell, British Petroleum, did not show up. They did not own up. These gaps in our memories of the past haunt the present. As we got closer to Rustenburg, Torch would change the subject. Now we had to think of what to say to Judge Ian Farlam when the proceedings began. This was despite the fact that the previous evening, a carefully worded opening statement every member of the team had contributed to had been prepared. We had left the meeting room satisfied that it touched upon the likely evidence to be led, the causal links, the law to be argued in due course, all facets of a decent opening statement. But for George this was fine as far as a legal textbook goes. What he wanted was a real opening statement, a statement that would speak to the heart of the man, not to the judicial brain. People had died. Someone had lost a son, a father, a husband. The judge knew this. But did he feel it? Could he empathize with the widows? There is profundity in this. Essay legal education has tended to emphasize the separation of the judge from the case. This has its advantages, for it enables the judge to have an objective view of the law unclouded by emotions. The separation strikes one as artificial. In fact, it was this parsimonious view of the law that enabled apartheid judges to feel nothing for the victims of torture or widows of activists killed in detention. Then, law was whatever the political process had produced, just or unjust. Judges were expected to enforce the law, even as they may hold it as morally indefensible. The expectation, of course, has not been without its controversy. Liberal academics in the apartheid era, such as John Duggard, already exposed the facade of legal positivism. They could show that while the law, in a positivist sense, comprises a system of rules given by a political system, such rules were necessarily imprecise, leaving room for interpretation and discretion. Their critique of the apartheid state lay in its failure to fill in the interpretative void in favor of liberty. The same still applies. Our constitution, imprecisely framed by reference to the text, can be construed in pursuit of its transformative impulses, or against them. To return to our journey to Rustenburg, George mused about what would be the most impactful thing to say to the judge. Who do we act for again, he wanted to know? George paused for a moment, and then began another tale, this time about the first black judge of the U.S. Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall. As counsel, Marshall once appeared before the Supreme Court in a case that turned on the standing of his clients, a human rights organization, to pursue a particular point. When pressed to explain the basis for his standing, Marshall would reply that he represents the Constitution of the U.S. of America. At the time, 
my reaction to the tale was of mild indifference. Until George stood up to make his opening address before Farlam. Judge, he announced, the LRC, acts for the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa. At this point, most could not contain their laughter, including Farlam. Nukai Toby is a senior advocate of the Johannesburg Bar, and a former colleague of George Bezos at the Legal Resources Center.